Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Safs, and you're listening to The Last Stretch, a sports podcast. It's so good to be back in studio with you. Uh, it's been a little while, but uh, we're back in and uh, we had our first guest ever on our show, uh, Corey Kennedy, who is a strength and conditioning coach at uh, l'Institut National de Sport, if that is the right... <laughs> is that what INS? That's what, yeah. Um, terrible with acronyms. But yeah, he works at INS and uh, he also works... Uh, with Lee Canadien, so you know him well, obviously. I do, I do. He is our strength and conditioning coach as well. Yeah. So hopefully you guys are going to enjoy the show. He's going to talk about what he does and, you know, how that impacts an athlete and their journey to, you know, being elite. Check it out. My name is Corey Kennedy. I am a strength and conditioning coach and sports scientist at the Institut National du Sport du Québec, which is one of Canada's four um, Olympic training institutes. Uh, there I work with a bunch of sports, women's hockey, diving, and para-swimming at the moment. And then I also work a couple roles with Lake Canadian professional women's hockey team. Corey, thank you for joining us today in studio. Uh, it seems like you wear a couple of hats. Uh, can you tell us what sparked your interest uh, in this area of work? Um, I was an athlete. I played football growing up. I played a bunch of different sports when I was young, which I think most kids do. Uh, then specialized in football right through university. When I was in university, we still didn't, I was at the University of Toronto, and at the time we didn't have these types of training, supervised training services. Uh, we had one of the coaches on the football team was just each year, they passed that hat along, who's responsible for training. He would essentially take something off the internet, give it to the team, the team would go. And I was in kinesiology, and so after a couple of years, it was like, I don't think this is right. <laughs> this can't be it. Um, so, yeah, at a certain point, I started to read and do it myself because I was doing well as an individual and I wanted to be great. So I thought, this formula doesn't seem right. I'm going to figure it out. And luckily, that was most of my courses. But then I also took an interest in the stuff outside of school and looking online to different trainers and what they did and nutrition and supplements and everything that went into performance so by the time I finished my undergrad I knew like I wanted to go into high performance sport uh, either Olympic or professional that's awesome okay well I was just curious now did you ever deviate from what your like strength and conditioning coaches said um, since you were studying it yourself did you just branch off and uh, do your own stuff or did you wait until you sort of graduated and then uh, really pursued mostly waited and that was just because of a lot of it was supervised and so we would do team lifts together. And so you'd all follow each other doing the same thing. And the coach was there. But in summers, for example, do a lot of stuff off the sheet and some other things. The other One of the things was like getting a track coach, for example. So then I would just ignore anything that was speed related because I was doing it with someone else. Um, and some of the lifts would stay, but sometimes I would change them. So most of it was deviating later. Uh, you mentioned in your introduction that you work uh, for Lee Canadien and at INS. Could you tell us a little bit exactly what it is that you do at INS and with Lee Canadien? Yeah. At the INS, I'm a strength and conditioning coach. I work full days where I see athletes pretty much all day long. 
Um, with those three teams, uh, with hockey right now, there's 10 players that I train that are in the Hockey Canada Women's Program. With diving, there's 26 athletes from 12 to 29 that are in the national team program, next-gen junior and senior. And para-swimming is a small group. There's six athletes in our high-performance program. So I will do, with them, I will do, sometimes it's warm-ups. Um, one of the things about the Olympic Stadium and the INS is that we have 10 sports that literally live there. They call them resident sports, and that means they both train, have sports medicine, and practice on site. So, and Mel's seen it. It's a quite a big facility. And so, for example, diving, which is one of my main sports, outside of the glass of the weight room is the pool deck where we have the Olympic 50-meter pool, practice 25-meter pool, and the whole diving area, which is diving pool and dry land. So there's some athletes where I will literally see them before every practice for some dry land work. And then we'll have what we call dedicated strength and conditioning sessions, which will be longer sessions where we get bigger, stronger, more powerful. So there might be multiple hats. Some of it might be um, injury prevention or rehabilitation. Some of them might be performance. Uh, and then there's the analytics side, which is we have all sorts of gadgets and tools. Luckily, we're well-funded because it's all government-run. And so there's just a lot of time I spend looking at data, collecting data, trying to figure out are we doing the right things for our athletes? Can we help predict who's going to win and who's not going to win so that in the years further we can focus on either better talent ID or um, doing things better, avoiding injuries. Like, Can we tell why people got hurt? Is it because we didn't rest enough? Is because we practiced too much? Did we not train enough this period of the year? Stuff like that. So a lot of supervising training, but there is a lot of uh, the analytic science side to it. Awesome. Okay, and for those like who don't really you know, don't participate in sports. Like for me, I, I know what you're saying when you mean like dry land training and like strength and conditioning. Can you just like elaborate on what that means specifically for a diver? Because I mean, for hockey, I have a little bit of an understanding of what that means. But as a diver, what is dry land training? So in diving, we call dry land literally anything that's not in water. They'll have aspects with their coach in a specified dry land area beside diving that include going on a trampoline going on a spring floor where they can do maybe tumbling and different jumps. Um, they'll have dry boards outside where they can practice taking off of a diving board, not having to land in water, but maybe on a mat. But then there'll be, then there's all sorts of things where we kind of have a continuum of exercises where when I say strength and conditioning, that's everything that involves being stronger, fitter, faster. Well, there's some things that are going to look the same across all sports. Like with my hockey group, para swimming group, and diving, there might be a handful of exercises that everyone does. But then there will be times where with diving, maybe there's very specific positions and joints that we want to make sure are extra strong. So diving, for example, lots of core work. They do spins, tucks, and they have to sometimes resist. Well, every time they land, they have to resist the water in a perfectly straight line, or that's the goal to avoid splash. So that's something where they may spend a lot of time strengthening stuff with like arms overhead and trying to keep their core really strong in that position. So we might have very specific exercises that we work with them that we might do really frequently uh, that you may never 
have put in your program with Lake Hennedin. <laughs> what would be a uh, dry land training for a hockey player? Because obviously, Mel, I know you know. And I know that athletes tend to do a mix of different exercises that aren't necessarily, for example, if you're a pl- hockey player on the ice or diver in the water. But I think a lot of people don't realize that there's so much more to getting strong, being your best than just being on in your environment, yeah. if you will. So what would it entail for a hockey player? With hockey, I'd say there's like four things. There's anything that's like lifting with weights. So you can think of things like squats and lunges and bench press and chin-ups. And you can probably add many, many more, but those are kind of common ones. And then there's jumping, which can be in all directions, forward, laterally, and as high as you can. You want change of direction stuff. So that's anytime you're going left, right, forward, back, and around in circles, and then sprinting in straight line. Um, I'll kind of put those two together as speed. And then the last one would be conditioning. And conditioning we can do in many types of ways. I could say, Mel, today you have to go biking for an hour, and I want your heart rate to be above 140 the whole time. Yes, and then get ice cream. And get ice cream. <laughs> Recovery's key. <laughs> Especially cooling down the core temperature. <laughs> right. Um, or it could be anything you want. It could be jump rope. It could be you're on a, a treadmill. So there's all sorts of ways we do conditioning, but essentially making sure they can last through a game. But those are kind of the four big things. And with hockey, we know that being on the ice year-round can sometimes create a lot of problems, hips, back, get really sore in those areas if you get kind of, there's a weird position being bent over and leaning forward that you want to avoid. So with hockey, we typically find the summer months is all that and then they'll slowly get back on the ice near the end of the summer and then once we get to the season it kind of flips 180 you still want to try and do some of those things but you're going to be on the ice every day so you used to play football right at the yeah. university of toronto now you're working mostly i'm assuming with hockey players and divers what attracted you to that those athletes in particular to be honest there that wasn't necessarily my choice at the time so sometimes when you start work you get hired just generally Mm -hmm. so I the institute was built in 2014 there was already some stuff in the Olympic Stadium and the organization existed but they didn't have the training center you see now so they had spent a few years rebuilding it and redoing the gym and redoing all these other places and they opened in 2014 I was hired to be the head strength coach so the first one and build a team now Within that, there's a ton of sports in the Institute and a ton of individual athletes of Olympic sports. And so when that started, I trained uh, a lot of different sports. For the Rio Olympics, I coached 11 different athletes in seven different sports. So it's it's crazy, the variation. I had a a cyclist, paracyclist, judo, fencing, uh, and diving. And so there might have been another, and that's all I can think of at the moment. So that was crazy, but... Then within that, we're we're full-time um, coaches there who are hired by the organization to serve sports. We're not necessarily hired by the sport itself. So in this case, Own the Podium, who funds Olympic sports, they have different levels of funding depending on how good the sport is and how likely they are to win medals. So we'll, we'll kind of put priorities on sports that are more likely to win medals. And so as a senior coach over those the last four years, and it's like as we get sort of more funding for certain sports, it's like, okay, hockey and diving are both high-priority sports because they win medals. So then it's like, okay, Corey, you're going to go with those sports because they're high-priority, and then maybe other sports that aren't as important. That's where our junior staff, as they're coming up, 
work with and kind of shift around there. So I never intended to come in and said, I'm, I'm going to take over women's hockey and diving. Those are my things growing up. But it just so happens that you start working with some and you sort of grow within the, the, the groups, I guess you could say. All right. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So you did touch a little bit on how you approached like coaching different athletes within different sports. Um, I wanted to know, like, just with what you brought up, since uh, these weren't necessarily like you're choosing, but it's something you sort of fell into. Like, how do you prepare for sports that you've never played before? Or is it is it easily transferable? Like, as long as you have the base of, you know, fitness, like you were talking about speed, agility, with some uh, deviations for whatever, focusing on spins or something for diving. Like, how do you prepare for a new athlete? Let's say, like, you were given a, a I don't know, somebody like, kayaking or something yeah. the next day. How, how do you go about that process? Okay, that's a good question. There's, there's definitely steps you take. So, one, you sit down with the person you're going to start to work with, which is there's always a coach. Um, and there's the athlete, but the athletes don't always have as much, I'll call it intuition or awareness. They might go, I need to be stronger. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. Or <laughs> not quite fit. I'm not in shape. I'm a little bit out of shape. You're like, well, okay, that doesn't tell me that much. So when you go to a coach, you can say, okay, what, what are we looking at? Where are they relative to their career? Where are they relative to the rest of the national team? Where are they relative to making an Olympics? Just... So then you know, okay, this athlete is still young. This athlete is senior and they need to make the Olympics or they're really close. Then you have an idea of what kind of level you're dealing with and what kind of commitment and how far away you're looking to succeed, I guess you could say. Then you want to start to figure out more about it. So one, you want to watch, get on YouTube, get on whatever, look it up and make sure you can actually talk about like the events and the names and not screw those up. And you say like, okay, so in, you know, in Kai, you're like, okay, so are they going to do just individual or K4? You know, is it 500 meters, 1,000 meters? You want to find out which distances they're going to do. Uh, how long do those take? So you want to make sure you have, like, certain details so you don't look like an idiot when you're like, well, when the coach says, well, obviously we have to last for 2,000 meters. You're like, yeah, how long does that take? Yeah. <laughs> like, is that minutes? Is that seconds? So you do a bit of homework there. And then the next thing is, luckily, in our network, Right, we have the different institutes and pretty much all of the Canadian sports are spread around them. So I know people in most of those sports um, or you hope that over time you've developed a network of coaches around the world that have coached them. So you try to find someone and say like, okay, is there something, what did you find in the five years you worked with them? Like, where did you go to? Maybe I can skip a step and say like, oh, I'm going to be specific on these things. But then after that, it's like, it's definitely, you start adapting to your normal way and then with time you get these intuitions about the sport after you've watched them i mean i think everything takes time of observation before you get your own eureka moments of saying like oh i just need to really focus on that that's what's missing i know para swimming this was my first year with them and i took over for a colleague who moved to a different sport full-time and so i already knew the athletes and the coach we'd had talks in the past so it made sense and they're also a a, a fairly high priority sport that i took them over but when I took over the first three weeks and four weeks, the athletes were all like, whoa, this is different. You know, this is a, they felt different. Maybe they got more sore than normal, different things like that. It wasn't that I was doing a better job than the other guy. I just had a different style. And so I, I will automatically introduce my style, which has certain types of training, certain exercises, even if they weren't all super specific to their events. I'm definitely going to have a flavor. And then hopefully over the season, I start to figure out like, oh, 
I should really focus on X because this one does more backstroke. And then, oh, okay, I see that with a breaststroke athlete, I want to avoid that. So some of it would be in like getting info from my colleague. What were you focusing on? What were you trying to do? And then some of it, you you just have to spend time picking that up. Like, what's your style? <laughs> <laughs> what, like, is it because you have like a bread and butter like exercises or something? Like you did say that there are certain movements that are very translation like translatable from one sport to the next. Is is that sort of what you're referencing when your style or well. One thing about styles is like everyone has a flavor. Like once you sort of establish yourself in this business, it's kind of interesting because you can see like everyone's workouts have a structure if you went to that person, if you went to that person, which is kind of neat. It's like your signature. So one thing with most of my sports, and this is where swimming, it depends on the time of year and which event. Um, and in the case para, it depends on the abilities of the athlete because they're not all capable of doing everything. But I tend to spend a lot more time doing, we'll call it like speed, dynamic exercise, speed, jumping, change direction. Um, sometimes you'll have like in training programs where people have phases where they get to that at the end. And in general f training philosophy, that's usually the closest to the season is like become explosive, but first you get huge and then you get strong and then you try to turn it into this explosiveness. Well, I don't believe that it that does it justice and that there's a lot of coordination that goes into that so I have something explosive every day of the year pretty much so that's something that some people come in the program like well I'm not used to doing this many jumps and sprints and things like that even if it's not a crazy part of the day even if it's just the first 10 minutes it's just always there we're usually like oh I don't usually get to that for two months so there's stuff like that um, you'll find like there's favorite exercises when I'm doing like different core and conditioning stuff near the end. I do a lot of kettlebell stuff. I really like kettlebells for different reasons, but some people don't do them at all. So then all of a sudden you come with me and you'll do them a couple times a week with different exercises. So there's there's always like a new thing in there that if you didn't do it for a while, you're like, oh, that's making me sore. I didn't realize that before. And so with the coach and the athletes going like, okay, that was a bit of a shock. Is that fine to keep going <laughs> like that? Do I, do I pull back on some of my stuff because it's not working? Yeah, this brings me to like our next question, which we were just interested in. So you have different approaches to athletes in different sports, but how do you cater to different athletes within the same sport? Um, do you find that some people are more receptive to maybe your certain like delivery to how you explain exercises or like beyond going to their like physical ability? Because obviously you have to cater or cater each workout to someone's individual skills or what they might need to work on but you know as like a player I have a lot of experiences with different coaches and you know my teammates as well I see that you know some people aren't receptive to someone yelling at them or some people don't want to be encouraged every moment of their lift or whatnot like do you do you cater sort of your delivery to um your athletes or are you sort of like here's a program, let me sit back. If you have questions, you could come come ask me. How, how do you approach that? Well, they, that's definitely true. Like everyone has stuff that they need that are very psychological, that are separate from the physical thing. Um, I tend to, I'm very hands-off in general. So uh, I do sit back more. Uh, I'm around and I try to I spend more time on sort of the motivational and psychological side than the cueing side. There's a lot of 
all the research now in motor learning and stuff is that you don't want to cue things a lot. And if you want to sort of design the exercises to solve problems rather than tell someone, okay, keep your elbow in. You want to create either a visual or, hey, do it like a, an analogy, or you actually have some sort of constraint where they can't do it or things like that. Maybe it's with a rubber band or against a wall, stuff like that. So number one is you don't want to overcoach anybody. So there's a large style in that in designing exercises to get what you need and cueing less so that people actually have to think about it. But then there's a whole other side of it, like what motivates you? How much positivity and how much negativity can you have? There's definitely people who I can make fun of. I like to laugh a lot and joke a lot, and I will tease people a lot. But then there's people that you can't tease very much because that negativity will last. They'll take it home. Yeah. Corey it, teases me. I tease Mel a lot. <laughs> but I can handle it. She can, we think. <laughs> so she says. So she says. So Just s- bringing it up here. <laughs> no, I'm not. Like, I'm, I like need to know exactly what he needs from me. So like for me, I'll ask a million questions mm-hmm. or he'll just come up and he's like, you're a perfect example of what not to do, which is kind of good because then I learned <laughs> and everyone around me does. <laughs> That's it. And I'm also extremely, I told you about the analytics side, I'm extremely data driven in the decisions I make. So I try to collect a lot of information. How fast are we running? How high are we jumping? What kind of re- physical readiness do we have today to train with? Um, where have we been in the last month? Where have we been in the last year? Where have we been in the last five years? And some people, I'll explain a lot of how this compares to others. Where have we come from? What are the underlying aspects that help me? Like, what am I seeing with that number? What does that mean to your body, to how you react? And then there's others where I that information is just really good to be like, you went up, you're doing good, kid. And that's enough for them to be like, yeah. <laughs> and they keep going. And sometimes they don't need more. And they don't need to really explain, but, but what does that mean? What what does this mean that I jumped higher, but I'm not as fast as before? Or how does that lead to hockey? So there's definitely a game that you hopefully learn to play. I try to be aware all the time of like, how's my message going to that athlete? And some days I'll realize like after the day, like, I think that barb, that jab I made might've been too much. So then tomorrow it's like, okay, I need to remind them they're doing awesome because they may have gone home thinking like, I made fun of them for missing a lift or something. And they met, I can tell like when they walked out that like they were thinking about missing that lift. Mm-hmm. Where someone else, it might be like, oh, I'm going to just explain a little bit more about like what it is, what because I need it a little bit more. I don't know if they're giving me everything, but I think we have a lot of potential. So I'll just say like, you know what? This is what's possible. I've seen it. I've seen it a million times and we can do it. And it just takes this. And do you think we can do it? And sometimes you have to ask, you have to also ask questions because when people agree to things, then they're more willing to do it themselves. So I always say things like, do we have a deal? And then you'll say like, yeah, we have a deal. All right. Sounds good. Well, now, like, since you brought up like data and stuff, like how has your training approach evolved from when you started until now? Or are you always changing the way you approach? Because obviously, like, you know, my background's in science too. Like we're always if you're keeping up to date with the literature, like things are always changing. You're a scientist yourself. So how, how does, like, do you consider your athletes sort of like experiments? Um, yeah, very much so. And I, I try to tell them that like fairly regularly. I say it's all an experiment all the time. 
when I'm like, okay, we just have to try something new because this month either it either didn't go the way we thought or next month we have a roadblock. And an example is like your team. With women's hockey, it's not a well-paid sport, unfortunately. So you have jobs. There's a lot of you that are coaches. You're, you maybe have sponsors and you have engagements you have to go to or you're going to work at a hockey camp and all of a sudden you have a lot less time. So then it's like, okay, how do we change the training without the same time? Maybe like we're not in the gym literally for a full week. Um, there's a bunch of members of your team that flew to New Brunswick yesterday because they're at hockey camps for the next six days in New Brunswick. So if I'm not there and I don't know if the gym has the same stuff, what kind of things do I put in there? And do I think we can try something a little different that might still have an effect? So there's there's definitely stuff that you experiment all the time. Um, but then there's there's just general trends too where I'll do a lot less of. I know um, I don't do very much we'll call it like steady state cardio. There's some people that still women's hockey at this level will have people doing a full day on a bike for 75 minutes to build up their aerobic system. I don't believe that's necessary. So I'll put in, so for our hockey players, for example, they pretty much will always finish the day with something that's specifically conditioning, but they might be repeat bouts of high intensity anywhere from 10 seconds to three minutes. And maybe we do a bunch of them, and maybe they're mixed in with another exercise. And maybe So we might collect 15 minutes to 20 minutes where we're at a certain heart rate. But it won't be just sitting on the bike for 60 or 65 minutes or 70 minutes or going on a long jog. I'm not saying that they can't help, but I just don't know that they're always the most efficient use of time. So kind of like when I said my style is to have like rehearsal of speed stuff all the time. Well, the same reason why it's like we're in the gym, we're lifting, we're jumping, short duration. I don't want to give away days to just standing on the bike because I don't think I'm getting other benefits. Whereas I think if your heart rate is at the same level for 60 minutes, it's because you're going around the gym doing other activities, then you're sort of checking off many boxes. You're like double dipping kind of. Double dipping. Double dip. That makes sense. Now, I'm curious because um, you do collect a lot of data and you said that sort of it's like a metric for gauging how either a workout's going and stuff. I want to know, like, do you take responsibility if, you know, an individual's maybe not scoring as well or something? Do you feel a little bit responsible for it? Or, you know, obviously, like, the athlete, everyone has a little bit of ownership, you know. Only that individual knows if they've put in, you know, 100% at the gym every day. But how do you personally handle it when you're like, is this a, is this a program issue, an individual issue? Is it just, you know we're having a shitty week like that happens too at this level i'd say i take a hundred percent responsibility for the results so i say one fully the results are on me the effort and we'll call it punctuality are on you so if you've said i we train four days a week or five days a week or three days a week and you come to all those and it appears that you're giving your everything well, then it's on me to make sure that what we're doing during those times gets what we agreed on. So if that's you jumping higher or running faster or being stronger, that's totally on me. The moment you gave me that, if it doesn't go up, then I'm clearly wasting our time. So I definitely take full responsibility for that. But if you didn't take the responsibility first, I can't. Like, I can't. Like, if you went, I took three weeks and I just, like, I didn't want to come to the gym because I just yeah. don't like it. And I'm like, well, I, 
Yeah, if you don't the agreement's up, broken. You know, I can't yeah. say, well, it's my fault we didn't get the. So once you give A, then I take 100% after. But it's kind of like, I can't do it if you haven't come to yeah. the gym. Yeah, if you don't show up, you can't You can't yeah. do the drills. Dang, that's, uh, that's basically been me for the last month. I haven't been going to the gym. Anyways, moving on. Uh, <laughs> are there uh, any, like, exercises that you think are universally applicable to, like, all athletes regardless of the sport or is it really like you really have to work on individualizing it and tailoring it definitely 90 percent of sports could benefit from things like squats deadlifts what we call the olympic lifts which is like the clean and jerk or the snatch mm-hmm. um things like that are tend to be full body and they're just really developing overall strength so that's something that most sports you can say well you're using your legs and you're using your arms and you have to move your body a bit faster a bit further so you could definitely have those at parts of the year and they'll probably be the staple of most programs even swimming like swimming you start by pushing off of a platform as far as you can and every time you turn if you have more than a 50 meter race you're going to turn off of a wall and push off and when we do the analysis of races we might find that someone's losing a race on the start of the turns so that's something where we might say hey Swimming looks like it's mostly upper body and core. Well, obviously the legs kick, but it's not the same way. But you might say, but we have to have way more explosion on those two things. Otherwise, you're losing the race before you start it. Um, rowing is a lot of legs, even though it looks upper body. Canoe kayak, uh, f- the slalom version, no legs at all because they kind of whip around and they're not stabilizing their canoe. But the sprint kayak in a straight line, they actually use their legs quite a bit to cancel the rotation so if i'm pulling with my right side my right leg is going to stiffen into the boat they have pedals and allow it to not twist while i push everything with my upper body so while like canoe kayak athletes in the sprint domain women's and men's are like their triangles they're really wide at the yeah, shoulders yeah. and they have little peg legs <laughs> but you can't not do legs because it is uh it is a part of the stroke that matters so there's definitely a universal exercises that across everybody and then there's some where you're just like i'm just not going to spend very much time with Mm -hmm. that i'm going to move on to just lots of biceps (laughs) (laughs) lots of biceps yeah that makes sense um there's something that's been on my mind for the last couple of months and this was brought up by someone who's very close to me he's a physiotherapist so i know it's not the same thing as a trainer um but uh, i always asked him you know why didn't you go into sports physio or whatever because i mean from my perspective and from a lot of his friends perspectives too is oh like that's the more glorious glamorous type of uh work you could get yourself in and his his Uh, stance on that was as much as he has worked with athletes in the past uh, for him there is a moral and ethical issue when it comes to getting athletes back as fast as you can and having the coaches and everyone pressure them to for example get back onto the ice even though they're still injured so for him he feels that he can't he if he knows an athlete needs to rest or uh, be you know stay away from the game for x amount of time but he has to force them to get back that's just something he doesn't feel like he wants to deal with and can deal with so i was wondering is that has that ever come up in your line of work and has that ever you know have you ever you know had those thoughts of okay well i know that this person should be resting and doing physio or whatever but there's pressure from his or her party to get him or her back out there all the time yeah like i don't want to say every day but it's almost every day and that's where like as a disclaimer, I want to say high-performance sport is inherently unhealthy. 
we look at athletes who are super shredded and, and jacked and we think that they're healthy. It's unhealthy. Like most of them hurt physically in a lot of places. Mentally, it's like w- psychological warfare a lot of times in high performance sport, either trying to compete on the day or having to go through the grind every day. So I will say that it is an unhealthy domain and you have to kind of accept that in some ways and do your best to mm-hmm. balance it out. But one thing that I always go back to is that Olympic sport, like now I have some athletes that are next generation that we're building to be Olympians in the future and that are young. And we had divers, I had divers I worked with this year that were 12 and 13 and I have others up to 18. Definitely treat them differently. But once they're adults, um, sometimes it's the coach, sometimes it's the athlete, but more times than not, they're going to want to compete. And I try to always reflect back to when I played and you know, if something hurt, I ignored the physio because I wanted to play. And you, you don't think about your future consequences. So I think our job is to, one, the time I have with them, try to be as efficient as possible to help whatever it is that we think is wrong. Usually in every sport, um, hockey's a little bit different because there's actually, like for, if I talk about Hockey Canada, there's no coach here. These are players that belong to a program that's not here and they just meet for camps and stuff. So it's pretty much just me with them. Um, Whereas diving, the program is in-house and we have a physio and myself who are with them all the time. So we might sit down, coaches, physio and me and say, this is what's wrong. This is what we think. This is what we think they should avoid, what they can't avoid, what they should do. And the coaches will say, is what we need to do. But the athlete will also say, I really want to go to world championships. We had an athlete in diving this year who spent the last six weeks of the season in excruciating pain because, you know, as you're approaching the World Cup, which is the biggest event of the year, there was something wrong. She could dive, but it hurt a lot. And she wanted to, and she was totally intending to, and they won medals. Um, so it was one of those things where it's tough to watch. And it was the type of injury that was like, it was mostly like, I have to make sure I avoid X, Y, Z to not irritating it while we keep other things strong. You know, they tried to avoid certain things in practice. The physio would give certain exercises and then you just close your eyes and hope they do well. And that as soon as the season's done, you can figure it out. That definitely happens every year. The closer you get to an Olympics, the more common it's going to be because sometimes you have to compete at something to qualify. Obviously, when the Olympics come, you're going to try. Like if you watched in Pyeongchang, Marielle Thompson, a ski cross athlete who won gold in Sochi, she tore her ACL, I think it was four months before. Well, she rushed her. She had as much help as she could to try and do it, but she went and she competed. Is it safe? Is it healthy? Would normally, if you said, here's an ACL athlete, do you let them ski four months later? Everyone would say, no, you don't. Minimum six to eight months, probably a year. But when a person's like, this might be my last Olympics, I'm qualified, I don't care if I hurt my leg worse, I'm going to go. And there's an adult who's been to three Olympics, you say, okay, how can I help you do that? So I don't necessarily feel bad in general, but there's definitely individual cases where sometimes you're on the fence where you're like, this, this might go badly. And you try to just say to the coach and the athlete, this is what we think. This is what we're going to try and do. Sometimes it's either the athlete says, oh, I'm going to do it anyway. And sometimes the coach says, we really want to do it. And then as a team, you hope that you make 
the best decision you can. That's such a tough reality to deal with. I mean, I guess there's just so much on the line. So it's not easy to be like, no, go rest. It's not like somebody just like a normal person who's working out and tears their ACL and is just like, oh, okay, well. I'll just stop. I'll just, I'll just stop. That's I'll it. Stop for Take a the like, bus to work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I wonder, like, because, you know, I've played through injuries. No, nothing, like, serious. But, I mean, sometimes you just don't, you just don't I say like anything. most athletes do at some point in their lives, you know. For sure. But I, I would be interesting to know if anyone's ever regret, regret regretted it for some reason mm-hmm. or something. I don't know. Like, I don't know anyone who's ever, like, regretted like playing injured unless something worse happens. I feel like in but. the media, the most times I hear about like regret is when it comes to concussions. Um, sure. You've heard that with like a lot of NHL players. Uh, I think Guillaume Latendriès, who used to be with mm-hmm. the Habs, he's come out and publicly said like, I regret having played through so many head injuries and now his life is completely changed. Um, for sure. But I, I mean, feel like I don't hear much for others, that's, but I don't know. That's like obviously a hot button issue. Yeah, but. Sure. That's hard because, like, the research is so new on it. Like, I, I try mm-hmm. and keep up on it. And, I mean, even the diagnosis of concussions, like, a recent study had basically shown that, like, that doesn't indicate your prevalence to CTE. It's yeah. all the other hits that you don't even realize you may have done mm-hmm. something. Um, so that's another topic <laughs> for another day, I think. But um, Definitely going to dedicate an episode to that. <laughs> and I know when I played, the other thing is when you're in flow, you don't, like time is not of consequence to you. Mm. So you don't think about the future, for example. And usually when you're in high performance sport and you're in a game situation, you are in a flow state where you're, those things are literally not operational in your brain. I know I got concussed for sure when I played. There's like at least one time that I know that was a pretty bad one that I didn't tell anyone, even though at the moment I knew it wasn't right. But the moment you gain clarity, oh, I'm good. That was the idea. It wasn't like, I should go tell someone I hit my head. Even if in the moment, like right after, it was like, oh, I can't really see right now. You know, that's probably not good. Let me sit down. Five minutes later, you're like, am I good? Looking around? Yeah, I'm good. I I know my plays. I want to win. Do whatever. Mm-hmm. So then at that point, it's just your momentary survival, right, in the game. And so I bet you if you go to hockey and football and rugby and the sports that have concussions more commonly – it's probably extremely common where people will say they won't, no one will take themselves out. That's why now yeah. with mm-hmm. hockey, like they have spotters, football and hockey spotters in the stands who say, hey, someone has to pull that guy out and talk to him because yeah. we saw the way his head hit the ground. We saw him stumble after. We saw that there's a good chance there's a concussion. But even even in those situations, because someone will come ask you, like, how are you feeling? But like you said, if you just want to play, you're like... I'm good. Yeah. And that, yeah. You know, like you, you, it's hard to have like that responsibility. You're not going to self-diagnose in that situation. I don't think like no. not one athlete. Yeah. Like you just keep going. They're trying to develop different tools that they can hopefully say like, can this tell me that something's wrong? Whether mm-hmm. it's repeat these numbers after me or yeah. is there something more technological where it's like, can you tap your finger five times and we know you take longer to react or you know, is there something with your vision where we mm-hmm. can figure it out? And there are things that they're used definitely in diagnosis and, and rehab now for concussions that are way more advanced than I ever saw as a player in the university system. But again, there's still the level of, nope, I'm good. I remember my name and my address. I can count to 10. You know, are people doing more than that in a game when they don't have a lot of time? Like they're not going to take you out for half an hour and then later find out, oh yeah, they were good. And I 
they lost the second half of the game. Yeah, and they weren't right? there. So there's a responsibility to diagnose, but at the same time, there's responsibility. Like if you take a guy, especially if it's pro, because pro, that's half a game might be worth $26,000 and $312. 26000 Yeah. Mm. Not in so our sport, but. It's 1, <laughs> 20, 0.26. 26 cents. <laughs> Yeah, um, no, that's definitely tough. Well, this is a good, like, transition, um, basically just talking about how technology plays into sports, you know, whether it be diagnosed and stuff. How does, like, tech play into the way you've trained your athletes or you individually? Like, you know, obviously we are talking about a little bit of keeping your heart rate up and whatnot. Like, does everyone have a heart rate monitor every time they're working out with you? Um, how much of that data do you you know, I don't know, retain or put emphasis on when, you know, either relaying information back to whatever governing body and sort of, uh, I don't know, marking the progress of an athlete. Well, tech is definitely huge now in, well, everything we do. We all carry a phone. We all carry our phone on a watch. <laughs> <laughs> nope, this one's old school. Anyway. <laughs> we had an iPhone or iWatch conversation earlier. Yeah. Um. So I use a lot. There's always limits to how much you can physically collect yourself. Um, and what sometimes there's a game of negotiation with the athletes of like, I want you to wear this and do this and try this. And sometimes you can convince them to do all of it. Sometimes you can convince them to do half of it. Sometimes you can convince them to do just a little bit of it. Um, I don't require them to wear heart rate monitors. That's something that Hockey Canada in the past has required them all to have one. And at certain times they wear them and they might wear them in games um, and report that back to Hockey Canada. In workouts, I've at times either done them myself or had people do them with monitors. So I have an idea of what I think a general response was. And then it's like, okay, I don't really need to see it every time. I'm pretty sure that structure of a workout will give me what I need for that quality. So I, I don't do a lot of heart rate specific training. But if you were with a, we'll say a cardio dominant sport like cross country skiing or road cycling that would probably be something I relied on a bit more because we know it's way more about the aerobic system as a big predictor but we do certain things all the time we uh our athletes jump every time they train on force plates so that's literally two plates that are just really fancy scales and they'll do a counter movement jump as high as they possibly can and with that signature of how they produced force in order to get into the air how high they went how long it took them um, what the shape of that is can tell me a lot about what you have to give today. So you in an ideal state might jump a certain way and then you two days later after two really hard trainings will jump differently. If I was just watching you across the room, I probably wouldn't notice the difference. But if I'm breaking this out technologically, I can see, oh, it took you an extra 68 milliseconds to jump, which might be significant over time but I can't see that with my eyes. So there's some tech that I use a lot. We'll track those jumps every day. So there's some athletes I have jumps every day for five years or every training day, which is say four out of seven. Um, we'll track certain workout stuff, uh, speed. I'll try to measure as often as I can how fast we're going because if you don't know how fast you're going, you don't really know if you're going faster. So I do that fairly frequently. There's some stuff that's sort of tech related, but basic like this year, you get to look forward to filling out a form online every day that says, how hard your sessions were and how you feel. Oh, wow. So those Can't are, wait. <laughs> those are more qualitative approaches, but you're going to do that on your phone. Is that going to be a scale of 1 to 10 or? Yep. All right. Well, there's those are always two tough. different scales. Okay. There's going to be a scale for the wellness and there's going to be a scale for the wellness. Okay. They're different. But that's something that they're relatively qualitative. So whether you call that tech, 
or not from your point of view, but you're going to upload it onto the cloud and I'm going to download the results and I'm going to aggregate them across the team and try to determine whether we're making the right choices with practices, games, scheduling, training, um, travel. Mm. So tech definitely plays a huge role in sport, um, especially if you want to do a great job because you don't want to guess. But one thing that you can do is if you collect a lot of data is you can build intuition when you've seen something happen a hundred times and now you don't have to necessarily see it with the tech to say I'm pretty sure when we play three games in four days everyone's tired on the fifth day right so you start to develop certain things where you know what's going to happen you're predicting the future but if you never knew the answer to begin with intuition's vague intuition's built on a data set really What's your opinion on, uh, obviously, the technology you're talking about is very specialized and there's a very clear purpose for it and it translates into the real world and after you apply it, et cetera. But what's your opinion on, I guess, like every way, everyday techware that is sold, like, I don't know, for example, sports experts, that sort of thing. Obviously, there are some that's like more specialized, like I mentioned, but the one that comes to mind that I'm always like, is it really worth it? Is like Fitbits, for example. There's like a whole craze around it. And like, obviously there are a lot of trends just like with anything. Uh, What's your opinion on that? Do you think that people actually need it? Is there, you know, a specific reason why one should get it or not? Well, one thing is that there's a lot of research says they don't really work for Mm -hmm. changing your life. So let's say you're like, oh, I'm overweight. Doctor said I need to be healthy. I'm going to go out and get a Fitbit. Fitbit is unlikely to sh- succeed on its own. So from that perspective, you could be a pessimist and say it's not worth it. The other thing is they're not all validated to measure all the things they tell you. So they might be okay at measuring something, but then they're going to take certain liberties with their algorithms to estimate other things. And how many calories you're burning, that might be totally inaccurate, but you feel good about it. I will say for someone who works in tech a lot and looks at the science of it and checks to see if things actually are valid and reliable, I still want to know that I got at least 15,000 steps in a day Mm -hmm. because it means I wasn't (laughs) lazy, like I was moving around. So so with all that, I still check. At the end of my day, I have my watch and I'm like... But will you shake your arm to get that goal? No, I will not, but... Like right now, I'm at 64%. So this is a safe space. You can tell us. Walk okay. back. No, but I'm I'm kind of like Mel where she's like, hey, I biked 50K to have ice cream today. So now, now the world knows she's... I did that yesterday only for that. ice cream. <laughs> like because I know I'm counting, sometimes I will go, ooh, no, I'm going to walk a little bit around there. Or, Definitely not using the escalator. Definitely doing that. So for me, there's a little effect on making sure I get my steps if I want to get at least 15 a day. But I would say the research tells us that it doesn't work globally and it's not really helpful. You have to already be like, I'm already active. I've been active my whole life and I'm not overweight. So maybe it just kind of supports me in the fact I already do that. Yeah. If someone never works out and is unhealthy and they buy a Fitbit, it's not likely going to be the thing that gets them on their way. Yeah. Right. Well, it's obviously marketed that way. So I think 
most a lot of people who don't put in more thought into it will just be like this will change everything um what thing i was missing (laughs) (laughs) yeah well we're gonna wrap this up pretty soon but uh before ending the interview i wanted to ask you we talked a lot about how uh a lot of the different techniques and the things you do with other athletes and now we just kind of you kind of mentioned the things that you do for yourself having the fifteen thousand, you know that benchmark for yourself how do you apply what you teach to others to yourself I don't work out as much as I want to. Mm-hmm. So that part, I think I get a lot of times like if I'm drinking or if I eat something that's terrible and people see me like, oh, you're a strength coach and you're eating a poutine. <laughs> I don't believe in the rules of what I tell an Olympic athlete versus me doesn't apply. I don't have to <laughs> try to be an Olympian at the same time. Now, I do still, I demonstrate things all the time at work. And so I am competitive and I still dislike feeling terrible so i do in terms of my own exercise i do definitely a lot more competitive things than basic things i don't jog but i will still put on spikes and sprint on track a couple times a week that's my thing i like so would i say i'm generally healthy i don't know but i still try to be fast enough that i can beat most of the athletes i coach that's the thing that i try to like (laughs) watch them as they're getting better i'm like can i still beat them can you (laughs) Most of them. Oh, no, most. Of them. I'm not that. There's fast. a few that, <laughs> a few that have gotten away from me. So I, I use some of my techniques. I don't, I don't have a regular set schedule. I don't follow any programming. I don't like write myself a plan for the month. So from that perspective, it's not near as organized as what I do for others. But I'll like, I'll work out and be like, boom! I'm breaking out my spikes. And I'm going all, all out, and I'll just do that out of the blue. So it's a little bit more. I'll say extreme it's like impulsive very impulsive yeah i mean you gotta work out when you want to because not gonna like sometimes i force myself to do when i'm really really not feeling it and most of the time just like nah i needed to do more mental prep work (laughs) yeah well it's i think it's like (laughs) habitual i don't know like for me it is like it has to be for you well well like (laughs) after i finished university i like quit hockey for two years so i technically didn't really have to work out for a particular purpose but like if i didn't go to the gym for like three days Mm -hmm. like day four i'm like i just feel like shit i don't Mm -hmm. know why like and it's so weird because like the more you work out maybe you're even sleeping less or i don't know you're doing more things i feel like i have more energy so it's it's so true i mean the moment there are like times where i go through periods where i'm just like i need to relax so i don't do anything but i'm like i don't feel that great whereas when i'm on the go and doing like a million different things i'm like okay well i'm tired but i still feel like I feel good. Yeah. You know, it's one of those weird Maybe things. Maybe that's what but. the Fitbit does. Just reminds you. Well, I guess I'm going to get a Fitbit, guys. Thank you so much. That's literally why we wanted to have you on. <laughs> Just to sell Fitbits. Yeah. <laughs> Check our link. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We don't have Fitbits. But no, we don't. <laughs> and we can't get you on at a discounted price either. Okay. Dang it. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm going to leave now. No, just kidding. But uh, I mean, I that's all I wanted to ask. I don't know if you have any more questions, Mel. I think I'm all set. Yeah. This is an enlightening for me. Yeah. And I look forward to filling out those surveys throughout the year. <laughs> um, no, I th- I'm actually because I'm very data driven too. So I <laughs> yeah. I hope you could give me the results at the end. Absolutely. And well, I can give them to you during. During. Okay. Yeah. Doesn't can I analyze them as in. well? You can analyze. Them. We I could can see give you the raw data if you we want. We could see uh, <laughs> what we get from it. Yeah. <laughs> but thanks so much for joining us, Corey. It was awesome. Um, did you have any questions for either of us? No. None. Thank you. <laughs>
Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, Corey. On September 19th, 1993, NBC aired the first ever episode of Frasier, a spin-off series about psychiatrist Dr. Frasier Crane, the much-loved Seattle shrink from Cheers. Ten days earlier, a baby was born. A baby who, we'd come to learn, was destined to drop out of college and launch his own podcast network. That baby is me, Tom Zalatnai, and this is a terrible, terrible idea. Tune in to They're Calling Again, right here on the Upford Network. Secret Santa and then buying yourself a gift makes you a sociopath? Or if everything is everything, then how much of everything is there? Or what exactly a Moguana is? Well, <laughs> that one's just a way of saying more iguana. Or maybe you wonder what the death of a friendship over the course of 50 episodes sounds like. Whatever your questions, you can find the answers and also more questions on Lasers on the Ride podcast, now a member of the Upford Network, available wherever you usually get your podcasts. So that was Corey Kennedy, the strength and conditioning coach at INS. It was a super interesting conversation. It was it was awesome. Honestly, mm-hmm. it was so much more than I expected. Like, obviously, I know Corey, but, right. you know, having him sort of relay his opinion of what he does and whatnot was quite revelating. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously, as you know him as an athlete, and this was the first time I actually talked to him despite seeing him at the rink uh, with Lee Kanazan. Uh, it was just really interesting to hear what he had to say. And, you know, he gave a little bit of advice about, you know, what it's like uh, when you're when you're not an athlete, especially in what that mentality is. So, yeah, thanks for listening. If you like the show, leave a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. It's the best way for the show to grow. Follow us on Twitter at Mel the Rock and Saf's on the Go. Special thanks to James Blonde for letting us use their track My Fair Lady as our theme music. You can find all their music for sale at jamesblonde.ca. This show is produced and edited by Tom Zalatnai as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. That's a wrap. Mm-hmm.